I'm Auster Mujnietz and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 98. I'm your host, Pontus Berkman, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Jelena Levin. Hey, san, hey, san. Всем привет! Hello! Oh, guess what? We're recording without Andrus again. Yeah, he oh, is uh, um, traveling as usual. So uh, yeah, he's a busy boy. He's a busy boy. Yeah. All right. Today's show is a regular interview. We haven't had one for a couple of months, I think. So this time yeah. we're going to talk about Latvia. We will, and I am uh, super excited because um, I wanted to get somebody from Latvia um, and Latvian skeptics scene um, onto our podcast for a while. Um, and out of all places, I met uh, this lady that we're interviewing today uh, at QED. Mm. So uh, before we go into that, we'd just like to remind everybody that uh, we have a website. It is theesp.eu. Yeah, so you can either go on our website, which is www.theesp.eu, and uh, complete a form there. You can email us. Uh, it's info at theesp.eu. Um, we can reach us on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu. And um, like us on Facebook. Uh, we, of course, have the events in Europe page as normal. We have now filled in everything we know about until the end of December. So if you uh, want to see what's going on, go and look there. If you find that something is missing, please let us know and we will update it. We also now, since uh, about two weeks, uh, have uh, a Patreon account. So we would very much like for you to become a subscriber there. It's... Uh, patreon.com slash the ESP and uh, if you would you know give us a euro per episode that would be very very much appreciated yeah patreon is great like that uh, you can donate as little or as as, as much as you want and uh, they'll be greatly appreciated I'm actually a patron myself of several uh, producers of con online content yeah me too me too so it's a, it's a good way to support activism out there so, with that said, uh, it's time to go on to our interview, right? Yes, it is. And uh, the interview will be with Austra Muiznice, and she is a skeptic activist from Latvia. Let's go to that. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or project either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Today on the show, we have Austra Muiznice, who is a skeptical activist from Latvia. Yay, finally! And she's <laughs> very active on Twitter. She's here today to tell us uh, about her fight against the spread of a quack treatment of melanoma that came out of Latvia called Rigvir. 
Uh, we have briefly mentioned this topic um, on one of our previous episodes. It was episode number 93, not so long ago. We actually met Austro, all of us, all three of us, Pontus, Andrew and me, at QED uh, a few weeks ago and in Manchester that she attended for the first time this year on my recommendation. <laughs> so I'm very pleased that she came. Um, Austro, welcome to the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. And we're too. really happy to have you. Um, uh, just off the bat, you know, what do you think of QED? How was your first experience? Well, uh, obviously fantastic. Uh, I, think <laughs> I, I think I had a severe case of post-QED blues, like you have to go back to your regular life and you can't talk to all these awesome people anymore. <laughs> it was really, really great. And I met, I think, half of the people I follow on Twitter. <laughs> so that's quite something. Yeah. And I, I remember talking to you, you also said you bring in a bunch of uh, new people next year. Yeah, there were actually quite a few people uh, you know, from our little group who also wanted to come, but it was such a last-minute decision that we simply didn't have the time. But next year, uh, I think there's definitely going to be more Latvians. Right. Before we go into to all of the Latvian skeptics, tell us a little bit about yourself and how and why you got involved into the skeptics movement. Well, I'm basically, I work in completely unrelated field. I'm a translator. I work with all kinds of linguistic uh, projects. The way I got involved into skeptics movement was quite simple. Uh, a few years back, I, I got cancer myself. Uh, luckily, a very, very mild case, and I was very successfully treated. But I uh, got acquainted very personally with how people are sold quack cures, how there's so many people out there targeting you as a patient. And uh, I was kind of lucky because I got introduced to Quackwatch and science-based medicine, and uh, that basically gave me all the weapons I need to not fall for some dangerous stuff out there. Wow, that's, that's interesting. How did you know about science-based medicine? I, I guess we're referring to the blog, the American blog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I researched one issue that was uh, related to my own care, and I had actually fallen for something that is uh, for a post-treatment drug regimen that is usually only prescribed by naturopaths in the U.S. It's not a wow. standard based medicine thing. So I, I felt something myself, but uh, luckily it was for something minor. And I think in a different situation, uh, it might have been different. So that's basically my motivation. Just also on, on the same sort of note, when you were going through your treatment, were you in Latvia or were you already living outside? Because I know that now you don't live in Latvia anymore. You moved. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I did everything in Latvia. Okay, because I know from s some of the experiences that I had when I used to live in Latvia, uh, from people that I know who had certain diseases and, and illnesses uh, like cancer, they would be very open and, and prone to, to falling for the, all the quack treatments there. And there's a lot of those people who are spreading this uh, misinformation. And at the time, I didn't know what it is or how to call this. You know, it's interesting how I've observed the, the, the wave of this quack medicine just flooding Latvia after, well, let's say late 90s, uh, beginning of 2000. And now it's just uh, all over the place. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately. Yeah. So how big is the movement in Latvia right now, the skeptics movement? Uh, when when I used to live there uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, I wasn't aware of a skeptic organization there. Is it uh, kind of improving? <laughs> I 
Yeah, uh, um, I, I think the actual uh, skeptic society exists since maybe 2008 or so, but I, I wasn't aware of them. But the real activity, I think, started around 2012 or so. And right. they do a version of skeptics in the pub, I think, every month or every few months. Uh, they participate in, like, we used we, we had this really nice debate festival in the summer called Festival Lampa for, like, it's about politics, science, uh, all kinds of subjects, and they had, like, their own tent where a lot of skeptical issues were discussed. So I think it's uh, really on a good track lately. That sounds like it. Um, do they do all these activities in Riga, which is the capital? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I am not aware of any activities outside. Yeah. All right. I'm just asking for myself when I go there in April to look out for them. Um, I'll get in touch with Skeptic Cafe. Yeah, I will do. It's their Facebook site. I guess, do you, do you know many Latvian skeptics who are as active as you but live outside the country, apart from... Obviously, me. There's doctors who are, uh, let's say, proponents of evidence-based medicine abroad, but uh, it's not exactly like purely skeptic movements. Mm. So, no. So, not many. Okay. No. So, we heard about this uh, drug, Rigvir, that you have uh, done some research into. What, what, what is that? How did it come out of Latvia? And, and uh, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, it's a drug that has a long history uh, already in Soviet times in, in Lat- uh, Latvia when it was part of Soviet Union. Uh, the research started around 1960s, uh, done by a Latvian scientist. And basically, it's a virus that comes from the intestines of young children and supposedly has the ability to eliminate cancer cells and leave the healthy cells alone. Uh, but interestingly, it was only... The research was mostly done only on melanoma, uh, but there is not a single randomized control uh, trial on it. Um, and despite all this lack of research, it got uh, registered in Latvia in 2004 when we were already an independent country. But uh, what is quite an important thing to note is that uh, it was registered literally two days before Latvia joined the European Union. Ah, uh, ah! Because the, otherwise it wouldn't have. No, passed. it would have never gone through. And Absolutely. Uh, the proponents of Rigvir say it was legal back then. Well, I would really want to consult a lawyer specialized in medicine for that because I actually do not believe that's the case. Because even in 2004, we we would need quite convincing evidence, you know, especially for an anti-cancer drug, and there is simply no such evidence. Uh-huh. And uh, unfortunately, what has happened since 2004 is even worse, because while it was only registered for melanoma, for uh, prevention of metastasis and uh, for improving immunity, the company which sells this uh, treatment, they have single-handedly expanded uh, the indications. Basically, they're saying this works for colorectal, pancreatic, kidney, uterine uh, cancer, and what, whatnot. They are selling this treatment internationally, and uh, it's really a case where uh, this does not only affect Latvians. Mm-hmm. It yeah. has gone global. That's, that is the problem. So you said something strange, that it was a virus that is uh, found in the intestines of, of children. Yes, it's uh, it's an enterovirus. So how do you, how do you find that, and how do you extract that, and how do you make that a a, a drug? Well, uh, this is where you would probably have to talk to someone uh, yeah. with a lot more experience sure. in that kind of uh, work. Okay. But the story is that uh, story goes like this: that the 
scientist team who was working, who discovered this virus, they were actually working on, I think, polio vaccine or something like that in, in Soviet Union. And then supposedly uh, the scientist tested the activity of those leftover viruses against cancer. Oh. That, that's how what the story is. Okay. Interesting, yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, a lot of medicine were discovered by accident, but... Uh, well, uh, I, I would say that the, maybe the beginnings were completely legitimate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just something that never got tested properly, uh, yeah. skipped the whole, you know, let's check if this actually works, mm-hmm. let's prove it, and instead it's uh, gone into sales and uh, quite cracky marketing yeah. as well. Yeah, well, I think... It is clear that there are some really serious issues with drug regulations in Latvia that allowed for this drug to be produced and distributed as a cure for melanoma and now, as you mentioned, other cancers. How do you think this can be changed, if at all? Well, (laughs) what I would ideally want to happen is for Latvian institutions who deal in, let's say, corruption to, to look into this and to actually start an investigation because there's also some interesting political coincidences, like who was, you know, in control of certain institutions at the same time. And um, yeah, but, you know, it's it's not exactly something that skeptics can do. Well, uh, like, for example, here, here we've got the um, Good Thinking Society that puts pressure um, because they, they, they gather public opinion, they, they, you know, and uh, they sort of rally it all up and uh, put pressure on, on pol- politicians and some of the organization, regu- regulatory bodies. I don't suppose there is the same mechanism in Latvia. For example, you know, having contact with your skeptic friends from Latvia. Yeah. Could they possibly, you know, sign petitions? Um, I don't know. Well, we've been doing a, a lot of stuff, actually. Uh, we've submitted a lot of complaints to the health inspection. Uh, mm. It's primarily for advertising, making uh, crazy claims. False claims, yeah. Yeah, and there's also... You know, it's not just the skeptics, it's also two main oncologist associations in Latvia uh, wrote a letter to the health ministry this year to the drug agency, actually asking to remove Brigvir from the list of registered drugs, um, because there's no evidence, asking drug agency to provide actual evidence, it works. What the public response to this was from Latvian institutions, uh, our health minister publicly said, these doctors, they should prove that, that Brigvir does, does not work. Mm-hmm. Prove, prove a negative. Prove a negative, yeah, that's classic. Uh, prove, that, that, prove that God doesn't exist and fairies are not in the garden, okay. So, so this is, um, that's the situation in Latvia. Hmm. Uh, what I'm hoping for is actually involvement of uh, European institutions, maybe consumer protection uh, yeah. agency, uh, maybe European medicines agency, because this is, you know, we're already in European Union. This is affecting uh, a lot of patients from European Union as well. It's not just yeah. Latvians. Yeah. So I understand it's not just a Latvian problem now. It's it's being exported, no. it's sold in America. Is it also exported into the, the rest of the EU? There's a few big markets they have. One of the biggest is uh, US, but not directly. it's not directly sold in US. It's actually sold in a Mexican quack clinic called Hope for Cancer. Oh, here we go. We have talked about that before, yeah. Once you mentioned Mexico, you know, I have one uh, clinic. What's it called, Pontus? I, I remember we mentioned there were 34 Mexican clinics just at the border to the U.S. Uh, uh, that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So I don't know exactly which one you're thinking of. Gerson Clinic in Mexico. That's oh that's, well, yeah. that's the one that's based there, and we we know what what that's all about. Also, the quack treatment for cancer. Yeah. Well, Hope for Cancer also offers uh, Gerson Clinic coffee and smoothies. You know, because who doesn't know that you can treat cancer with coffee enema? 
Of course, and then as as long as you drink enough orange juice to make your skin go orange, you, you must be cured. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, so they're selling it to this Mexican cl- clinic, which in turn attracts a lot of American patients because they can go over the border. Then the second market is uh, actually Germany, uh, where Rigvir is sold in actually quite a few naturopath alternative cancer treatment clinics. And then there's, let's say, people from other countries who simply go to one of these clinics like uh, Latvia, Germany, or Mexico. There's also some other contact points in some other European countries, but uh, those are the three main uh, spots. And um, like to illustrate what numbers we're talking about is uh, it's I've been tracking a GoFundMe project for people who are asking uh, for money for Rigvir. Mm-hmm. And right now I have a very nice round number, 100 patients, mostly from US, but also like internationally from UK, from all over the place. Only nine of them actually have melanoma. 37 or so are dead from another 37, 38. I haven't heard any updates for at least six months to two years. And the total amount is 3.7 million, million euros. Wow. So I think sometimes numbers illustrate the problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And that's, I think, just the tip of the iceberg because Absolutely. those are people who actually ask for donations as opposed to just, you know, selling their house or their land or... Yeah. Yeah, and we've talked about this before on the show as well. How do you talk to people who are doing this uh, GoFundMe uh, things? I mean, you can't tell them, no, I'm not going to help you. Uh, because they they already reached that point when they're desperate. You yeah, know, and, and they, they may even do. know that this is a very slim chance. But what I'm going to do anything I can uh, to to try to save my my children or my wife or whatever. And I don't oh, really, your, your I don't life, really, really care about yeah. the yeah. evidence. It's the last chance we have. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, that's that's why those kind of businesses work so well. You know, hope, hope sells well. Yeah. The, yeah, just like the uh, clinics name itself suggests yeah <laughs> how ironic breaks my heart really yeah. um you know it makes me really yeah it, it, it is very sad to watch and I, I have mentioned it before i know but um my friend of mine was is go, going through cancer and he chosen to go down the gerson route essentially essentially uh, treating very treatable cancer with uh, a quack treatment and I, I and I can't really do anything because he was always um, supported by homeopaths and naturopaths in his life. And, wow. And it's, yeah, so it's a, it's a long, long way I, that he's come to go towards Yeah, yeah. and there's nothing I can say because every argument I make about uh, going down the uh, the conventional therapy route is met by, you know how many people died from chemotherapy? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I don't know if you how much of an expert you are on the legal side of this, but does this mean that that Rigvir got you know approved two days before Latvia joined the EU? Does this mean that it's now sort of grandfathered into the EU and it is approved in all of EU just because of that, or is it? Uh, no, because uh, it's a different kind of uh, registration procedure because EU uh-huh. has centralized procedures. Basically, once we were in EU. All, I think all cancer drugs have to go through centralized procedure okay. through uh, European okay. uh, Agency of Medicines. So I don't think Rigvir can just freely distribute it wherever they want. But this is something I, I would have to look into. Yeah, okay, okay, right. I mean, uh, you also have different requirements and different rules in separate European countries. You know, it's not mm-hmm. all the same all over the place. Yeah. 
So apart from the skeptic movement of which you are a representative, is anybody else talking about this in Latvia? Is this a, a known problem or is it just something that happens and nobody really pays attention? No, it's it's actually it's been quite quite a major thing in the in the media. Okay. Uh, also skeptics have been collaborating with uh, journalists and you know helping do research and providing materials and for that time I'm actually very happy because I think in Latvia uh, most people will have already heard that there's something, you know, off about this whole thing. Okay, that's good. Uh, it's doctors uh, as well, and uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know about about you, you Pontus, but I feel quite good uh, about the whole situation because Austria is in control and she'll get people. <laughs> she knows people. No pressure. It's actually the doctors who are uh, doing a lot at the moment. It's uh, Latvian oncologists, and uh, mm. we have uh, one. Uh, a professor of pharmacology in, in our medical university who's really investing a lot of effort into, uh, you know, submitting documents to the state institutions and actually going the legal route, yeah. arguing with state institutions. So uh, it's multifaceted. There's some stuff that skeptics do in spreading the information, but obviously the doctors are investing a lot of effort yeah. as well. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a very serious issue, of course, but it seems also that you're trying to address it and with some some success as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. small step. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If we leave Rigwir for a, for a bit, how would you otherwise characterize the the, the situation in Latvia? Is is there a lot of uh, other things going on as well, like homeopathy or things like that, or is it? Yeah. Well. Medicine is mostly science-based. In that sense, we're lucky that we don't have alternative medicine integrated into conventional medicine. It's quite divided, uh, which is which. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I see as a major problem is that uh, it's there's a major issue with availability of medical information for patients. And if you look at, for example, you know the infamous magazine, What Doctors Don't Tell You, it actually has one of the biggest number of readers in Latvia. Aha, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's in very high demand, and I think the problem is that people simply don't have legitimate good uh, information. That will explain why my mother spent uh, hours doing research herself rather than trying to go to doctors find out what's wrong with her yeah, kids. And there's also some, you know, there's major problems with the uh, accessibility of doctors. It's uh, we don't have a very well-funded healthcare, no. which is obviously also plays into you know self-treatment, and uh, mm. also there's this. Uh, part where I think people are very used to treating themselves with all kinds of herbal uh, teas, tinctures, you know, what, mm -hmm. what your grandma used to give you. Mm -hmm. uh, so, w Would you say that there's, there's a lack of trust in, in what the, you know, authorities are, are saying in, in Latvia? Yeah, there, there definitely is. Uh, I think I recently read some kind of a survey. I, I don't remember the numbers by... by by heart anymore, but uh, we had one of the lowest levels of trust in public institutions in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. And I heard quite often people say, oh, I don't trust this doctor and I don't want to listen and, uh, and, and he, he, he or she doesn't know what they're talking about or they didn't have time or uh, yeah. or I couldn't get uh, appointments. So it's it definitely not, doesn't surprise me at all. Mm. How about the anti-vaccination movement in Latvia? Is that also a big thing, or is that not something that you've looked into? 
Oh, it's interesting. Actually, my sister did a bachelor's thesis on on this subject. Oh. Well, I I I really wouldn't want to claim that I I remember everything she wrote, but the impression I have is that uh, it's been growing in popularity. Uh, there's more and more cases of people who you know there's kids with measles or or in Latvia actually tuberculosis is an issue. Uh, this might not be the case in the rest of Europe, mm. but uh, you have people who don't vaccinate kids against tuberculosis. Other diseases that you know can be quite have quite severe consequences. Unfortunately, this is where I think homeopaths come into play because there's quite many popular popular homeopaths who actually create doubt about the efficacy of vaccines, about safety. Uh, you know, obviously, big pharma. It's all paid by big pharma, and you can't trust big pharma. And yeah. That seems yeah. a common thread through, throughout Europe, well, and throughout the world with the vaccine. Yeah, infor- information is spreading. Uh, yeah. Information, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, with with the access to the um, social networks and, uh, you know, places like Facebook and Twitter, you can spread misinformation in seconds to millions. Exactly. And and you have so many readers of what that person going to tell you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, uh, um, so Astra, is there, is there anything else um, people need to be aware of in in regards to this drug? Because um, I, th- I thought you've got le- a little project coming up. Yeah, well, there's well, basically uh, the problem is that there is not a lot of information out there uh, about what has been happening in Latvia right now. It's only collected in my Twitter pin tweet. Uh, my name on Twitter is Zimbabwe with a B. Uh, but we are planning to uh, put all this uh, data uh, and the patient stories in uh, in a new blog that's going to be called uh, rigverfacts.com. It's uh, currently in the making, so that's where you can hopefully follow uh, the story in more detail. But uh, basically, the entire Rigver story is very well summed up in uh, sciencebasedmedicine.org by uh, Dr. David Gorski. Yeah. Uh, he really did a very good overview in a trilogy, one might say. <laughs> so uh, he goes into a lot more detail about the history and, and the scientific claims they're making. We'll make sure to link uh, to that in the show notes. All right, great. So what's uh, what's next for you um, in the skeptics sphere uh, or otherwise? Well, the next bit is uh oh, there's some stuff that I, I i guess i won't quite describe because we you know we don't want people to know everything <laughs> what yeah. we're planning but <laughs> but uh basically right now i think the main thing is to work on the blog so that this information is available to as many potential patients as possible that's gonna take a little bit of effort to write all those hundred testimonials up because uh, that's that's basically the idea um Rigvir people sell their product with testimonials. So we plan to put up all the other stories, you know, yeah. the yeah. ones where people died, uh, like to, to give a full picture. So you that's don't right. see just the yeah. uh, shiny, happy. Yeah, so so that's the plan. Yeah, and, and possibly also get in touch with cancer patient support organizations across Europe to basically give them a warning that this is what's happening. Yeah. So that they can share the information with their patients maybe. And where can people follow your work? Um, I know you mentioned your Twitter handle. Can you just repeat that again um, for the listeners? Yeah, it's uh, Zimbabwe, as in the country. <laughs> Long story why why I have a handle like that, but uh, it's Zimbabwe, but with a V, not like with English spelling. All right. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. And um, 
the work that you're doing is really important and it's great that uh, you're so active and uh, getting people um, aware um, and uh, keep up the good work. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't want to stop. So no, yeah. no, very good. So, uh, having me. <laughs> I'm looking forward to catching up with you in, in uh, you know, maybe in a couple of months or six months and see how it's going. Yeah, sure. We can certainly do that. I hope I have some good news to share. Very good. Definitely. All right. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks a lot. We'll catch up with you later. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So... That was the interview with Austra. Very interesting, really. And it, we've been waiting to hear from, from the Baltic states for a long, long time. So Yeah, and, and I didn't want it to be as unfortunate as this spread of this uh, quack treatment, but uh, it is what it is. And it's great that she's doing this good work and her and other people who are involved um, in campaigning and uh, writing letters and making people aware. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's it's very very important that we hear about these things. And I we we saw the name Rigvir on on some you know online somewhere, but I don't think we realized how that this was something that's been around actually for a while. And yeah, out of all the countries in the world, Latvia is so tiny, and yet they managed to produce this. Uh, not 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 a very great drug. Yeah, it just just goes to show that pseudoscience uh, is everywhere, mm, and it has international uh, repercussions. And of course, Mexico is part of the problem again. So that that's starting mm. to become something I'm very well aware of. Uh, it all comes down to the fact that obviously uh, places with slack regulations um, will have the, the these kind of activities and clinics um set up because yeah. they have they have uh, the way around uh, around it yeah yeah and the only thing we can do is to try to spread the word and the information about it yes. so that people can and be I, more on their yeah. yeah educate them and provide them with a the good information so. yeah absolutely so let's go on and listen to two other short interviews that we recorded in Sofia in Bulgaria during the Ratio conference So it's amazing what happens uh, in the skeptical world. Um, suddenly you find yourself in a hotel room with Professor Chris French. <laughs> so we're both here in Sofia, Bulgaria, and uh, we're both here to participate in the ratio conference that actually starts tomorrow. But I wanted to catch up with uh, Professor French. Um, so can you just tell us very shortly what you're going to talk about tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow, um, as it's not too far from Halloween, uh, I'll be talking about the psychology of ghosts and hauntings, or the alternative title is A Skeptic's Guide to Ghosts. Yeah, right, okay, very interesting. Uh, I am surely looking forward to that. But I also understand you have a new research project uh, going, and I believe that this is something that the public can also take part in. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. On Halloween, uh, we launched a massive survey. It's called the Big Sleep Survey. Uh, We're doing this in collaboration with BBC Focus magazine, who are also promoting the survey. And uh, basically, we're particularly interested in finding out from people about their experiences of sleep paralysis and, wait for it, exploding head syndrome. I hope that doesn't happen to too many people. (laughs) It's a thing. But please, tell us what it's all about, because it's really fascinating. Yeah. 
Um, but just to say before I go any further, we're also interested in hearing from people who've never had either sleep paralysis or exploding head syndrome because obviously we want a comparison group as well so, ah, yeah. so in other words we want all of your listeners to fill in our survey uh, and the survey link can be found at sciencefocus.com forward slash big sleep survey anyway what is what is sleep paralysis what's exploding head syndrome um i'm sure many of your listeners will already have heard of sleep paralysis in its most basic form, it's when you are half awake and half asleep and you realise that you can't move. And it typically lasts a few seconds, uh, then you snap out of it. It's a little bit disconcerting, but it's kind of no big deal, really. Mm. Most people don't get too distressed about it. Um, it's, I say, fairly common, a big meta-analysis by uh, Brian Sharpless, who is, who is one of our team working on this new survey, um, estimated that in the general population, about 8% of people will report they've had that at least once. Interestingly, two groups show much higher rates, around about 30%, and that's psychiatric patients and students. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and it does make sense when you start and think about it, because if you've got the underlying susceptibility, it's much more likely to actually manifest if you have a disrupted sleep pattern. And two groups that are renowned for having disrupted sleep patterns are psychiatric patients and students. Mm. Um, in a smaller percentage of people, it's, it can be a much scarier experience because you get associated symptoms. And these typically include things like a very, very strong sense of presence. So even if you can't see anything or hear anything, you feel as if there's someone or something in the room with you. And whatever it is, they are a threat. Um, but you might actually also hallucinate. You might see um, lights moving around the room or dark shadows or demonic figures, all kinds of horrible stuff stuff and you, you may not be aware that you're half asleep you think you're fully awake you feel fully awake this is one of the interesting things about it um you might hear voices footsteps mechanical sounds you might feel as if something's breathing against the back of your neck and remember you can't move so it really is very scary there's often a, reports of difficulty breathing of pressure on the chest and uh, maybe not surprisingly intense fear uh, and as you say, it feels incredibly real. And in a sense, um, people are kind of justified in feeling that they are awake because we know from psychophysiological studies that what we actually have here is a kind of combination of two different modes of consciousness, if you like. Um, even if you look at the kind of EEG traces during these episodes, it's a mix of normal waking consciousness plus what you'd expect to see during the REM stage of sleep. That's rapid eye movement yeah. sleep. Um, and during REM, the muscles of your body are actually paralyzed to stop you acting out the actions of your dreams. Um, so it's basically as if your, um, your, your brain, your mind has woken up, but your body hasn't. So you've got this mix of wakeful consciousness plus the kind of dream imagery coming through into this into normal waking consciousness. Mm -hmm. so, so if you if you have this and you, you're, it, does it help to know what what it is? I mean, that it is a thing, and can it, that help people? It does. I mean, I, I know from personal experience from a number of people who've got in touch with me over the years while I've been interested in this phenomenon that just finding out that there is this thing called sleep paralysis 
it is it can be absolutely terrifying but it's essentially harmless in itself and just finding out that firstly you're not the only person in the world who who's having these experiences you're not possessed or something and, and yeah. you're not possessed it's not ghosts it's not demons you're not being abducted by aliens it's none of those things it's this admittedly very scary hallucinatory experience but at the end of the day it's not real and so sometimes people find that even just learning that is enough to relax them so that they don't actually suffer so many episodes in future. Because, of course, what can happen is if you if you start having these episodes, you get so frightened of going to sleep that you try to keep yourself awake. And what that's actually doing is making it more likely that you of will course, have an attack when you fall asleep. Of course, because you're more tired asleep. than... Yeah, exactly. okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And I should just say something about exploding head syndrome. Yes, that's absolutely. That's something, that, that that's something I haven't heard haven't about. Heard so, of. No. Um, again, this is one of those things that uh, I've only come across kind of relatively recently. Um, Brian Sharpless is like the, the world's number one researcher on this phenomenon. And it's one of those things that uh, once you actually start talking about it, you quite often find that if you're in a group of people, at least two or three will say, oh, yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, if you don't ask, you'll never find out about it. What it is basically is, again, it's one of those things that happens just between sleep and wakefulness but this time it's a it's a phenomenon that just is very very brief it's basically people report hearing a loud noise now it may be an explosion hence the, mm-hmm. the term exploding head syndrome it may be a door slamming a scream a buzz it can be any kind of noise but it's a very loud noise that jars you awake and basically kind of you know you're lying there with your your heart pumping and in a cold sweat mm-hmm. thinking what the hell was that yeah uh, and actually it was nothing it was a hallucination mm-hmm. and estimates i mean again some of the some of brian's research shows that about 18 percent of students report that they've experienced that so again it's a very common experience but one that uh, many people most most people probably haven't ever heard of, but it is a thing, and so we're interested to find out more about that as yeah. well. So, so how can people participate in your your? There's a survey, or what? What is it? It's a survey. Um, probably takes, I would estimate, maybe fifteen twenty minutes to to complete. Uh, as I say, we want to hear from people who have had sleep paralysis and or exploding head syndrome, but also from people who haven't. And the survey will basically ask some basic kind of demographics about age, gender, etc. We will ask questions about. Um, if you've ever had any of these experiences, kind of what it was like, what strategies people might adopt to try to cope with those experiences and which ones seem to work. Some questions about beliefs and so on. Um, and, and, and about uh, general sleep habits. We're interested in how does general sleep quality relate to these mm. types of phenomena. Because you su- suspect that if you're d- not getting enough sleep, this is more common. Yeah. I mean, basically, if you, I mean, um, all, all of the kind of previous research suggests that anything that might disrupt your normal sleep pattern makes it more likely that you'll have an episode if indeed you uh, have the underlying susceptibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so again, where can one go if one wants to participate in the the survey? Okay, it's um, sciencefocus.com uh, forward slash big sleep survey. But if people just type big sleep survey into Google, okay. they will get very there. fascinating. They will get the link, yeah. What will happen with the results later on? How is, is, will you be able to see what the results are after you've analysed yeah. it? Well, the the survey will close uh, on January the 7th, so it's open for quite a long time. Uh, and within just a couple of days of, of collecting data, we've already had well over 2,000 wow. completed surveys. So we're going to have a huge sample there. Um, the initial analysis, based on the kind of quantitative questions that we're asking, will prob- can probably be done fairly quickly. Uh, I think it's going to take rather a bit longer to actually do some of the content analysis on some of the more open questions mm-hmm. that we're asking. 
thing. Um, but we're hoping to get some kind of preliminary results out before kind of middle of next year. Ah, okay, very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's it's very fa- fascinating. I've I've known about sleep paralysis uh, before. Is it? I wanted to ask him, but I felt maybe it was a stupid question because it's uh, so amateurish. But could one uh, understand it as if parts of your brain is asleep, but parts are not? Is that too simplified? No, I think that's a very good way of, of, of summing up what's happening. Okay. Um, it, it, it is exactly that. I mean, in one sense, we all go through sleep paralysis every night insofar as when we are in that REM stage of sleep, the stage of sleep that is typically associated with vivid dreams, the muscles of your body are actually paralysed. You're not, you're not mm. able to move. Uh, of course, we're not consciously aware of the fact that we are lying in our beds. We're consciously aware of whatever we're dreaming about. So something goes a little bit wrong here. And as, as, yeah. as you say, it's as though parts of your brain wake up, but other parts are still yeah. in the REM stage. Uh, and you get this kind of interesting kind of um, dual consciousness of both on the one hand you're aware of the fact that you're lying in your bed you can open your eyes you can see your bedroom but you can't move and you have all this weird dream imagery coming through into normal mm. waking consciousness and it can be absolutely terrifying yeah yeah okay thank you very much uh, we're looking forward to seeing the results from this study and i think i will go and take the survey myself excellent okay thank you thank you So I'm here the day after the Ratio conference in Sofia, in Bulgaria, with Dr. Stephen Goldfarb. He's working with the ATLAS experiment at the, the LHC, the, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Uh, nice to talk to you. Well, it's nice to talk to you, Pontus. Yeah, welcome to the show. Uh, you held a, a fascinating talk yesterday for, for the 700 uh, plus audience we had that. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I, I did really. I did really. I mean, it was 45 minutes. So, so. But could you pr- briefly uh, tell me a little bit of what you talked about and what you're working with? Briefly summarize transparency by transparency. Oh no. no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, what did I talk about? I I talked about the challenge that we have uh, in science, in particular, of course, with the focus on the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, to tackle really, really difficult questions, mm-hmm. basic questions which have been with humankind since, well, the very beginning of humankind and probably before that dinosaurs probably asked these questions, which are basically, <laughs> you know, you know, where do we come from? Where are we going? What are we made of? And what are the rules that govern all of this? And we look at those questions every, every day, essentially. Of course, we don't try to answer them, <laughs> you know, exactly that day. Uh, but, most of the work is meant to do that. And uh, bit by bit, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of the Large Hadron Collider is that we collide protons together. And, and in fact, I, I hate the word collide in that mm-hmm. because what you really do is you take protons and you pass the beams through each other. Ooh. And what you really, really hope at these points, this happens at four different places, and Atlas is one of those places where there's a detector surrounding this this beam crossing. Uh, what you really hope is, is that the, um, the partons, I'll call them the quarks and gluons that make up the protons, come close enough at a high enough energy to interact. Yeah. Where they might produce something, so the energy they have might become mc squared, the e might become mc squared, which will then, if it's a larger mass, larger energy, will then, uh, transform to lighter particles. What we try to do is to reconstruct all those lighter particles, which we measure in the detector, to see what it was that got formed 
mm. by these interactions. Mm. So that's essentially when, when we say collisions, that's what we mean. Many people get this misconception that you just are smashing things to see what's inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in reality, you're, you're you're actually even building bigger things. You're building things that are more okay. massive by by having these interactions and then studying those things. Uh-huh. So. Uh, Perhaps the most well-known, still most well-known uh, interaction uh, that we had, uh, many interactions actually, uh, that f- formed a particle which we've been looking for since, let's see, 1964. And that's a particle that was, that was sort of put forward uh, to give a solution to the question, why do fundamental particles, particles which have no volume, when I say we're looking at the you know, most basic building blocks of matter, we're looking at those things which you can't divide anymore, mm. at least as far as we can tell. Now, uh, the big question is, you know, when you get down to there, why do they have mass still? Mm. You know, and why is it so different? Uh, as an example, uh, you have electrons with a pretty light mass, relatively speaking. Uh, it has a, a more massive sister uh, called a muon. We learned about these from cosmic rays hitting our upper atmosphere and, and muons coming down through us. We, we measure them all the time. They, they come through us several each second all the time. Um, why is this muon, you know, 100 times more massive than the electron? And then again, the muon has an even more massive sister <laughs> called the tau lepton. And it's even much more massive. And the same thing happens in the quarks. You have these different families which have more mass. And... We, you know, didn't understand that. We didn't understand why uh, carriers of force, the nuclear forces, the weak nuclear force, the W and Z bosons, uh, why would they have mass? They're just carriers of force, like like photons. Photons don't have mass. Yeah. Yet, in all of our measurements, it, it appeared that there's weak reactions. When something's weak, it tends to mean that the interaction only happens when they're very close. And that's a clue that the carrier of that force is massive. Mm-hmm. And so why is it that these things have mass? You know, so that was the, actually the question that was Peter Higgs was trying to, to solve, as along with Francois Angler and Robert Brute in 64. It later, in the late 60s, got put into a theory of the standard model and explained why everything has mass. But what remained was you to find this damn yeah, thing. Yeah, still haven't <laughs> found it, yeah. Exactly. So, so you know, it uh, essentially you can describe it best as being a field that's everywhere, all over the universe, even behind the fridge, this field. <laughs> it exists absolutely everywhere. And um, particles, when they interact with it, this is the sort of solution that was put forward, when they interact with that field, uh, they they gain mass. Or you can say, depending on their mass, they interact more with that field. Mm. It's sort of a circular yeah. statement there, but you understand that. Yeah. That's, that's a measure. The mass is a measure of their interaction with this field. Now, uh, what was interesting was, was uh, Peter Higgs, he put that forward, and it was rejected immediately because it was one side of a piece of paper. <laughs> paper. So he said, fill that out some more. And what, what they ended up having him do was to add the fact that since there's a field, there has to be a particle that propagates it, much like the electromagnetic field has photons. The Higgs field mm-hmm. uh, has a boson, and that's called the Higgs boson. It was given that name only yeah. because... He included it in his paper, and Angler and Brut didn't include it in their paper. So, so we had this thing. That's that's how you find a field: yeah. is you find the the particle 
Right? And, and that's essentially an excitation of the field. So you need some energy. You need to put energy into that field. Lots of energy. Lots of energy. Yeah. Uh, relatively speaking, it's high energy density. Okay. Many people say, you know, you guys are recreating the Big Bang. Mm. That's a lot of energy. But we're not actually going around and gathering all the stars and galaxies and bringing them back together into a little ball. It'd be a lot of work. And it'd be hard to get a grant for that. <laughs> um, but what we do is we recreate sort of the energy density. So as to way to think of that is, is actually the energy of of the protons colliding is this you're going to hear it okay this is the energy of protons colliding okay that's it mm-hmm. it's my hands clapping there yeah. uh it's not a lot of energy you know there's people who accused us of you know causing the earthquake across the the other side of the, of the planet no two hands clapping don't don't cause an earthquake or don't cause planes to crash or anything you know to happen um but if you were to take your hands and put thumbtacks on them mm-hmm. and then do the same thing you would notice the difference. That would show you what energy density is. It's taking that energy and putting it into a very small area. And that's what we do. So the energy density, the amount of energy per you know, unit area when the yeah. collision happens is, is just like shortly after the, the Big Bang, mm. fractions of a second. And so that allows us to produce these particles and it allows us to put this energy into the Higgs field and make an excitation. And that's the Higgs bosons. So we were able to produce the Higgs boson. Now it takes a trillion proton collisions uh, for us to actually see one of these. So at the time, uh, it was July 4th, 2012, when we announced it, uh, we'd gathered several hundred trillion collisions wow. uh, that, that had the signature of being the Higgs boson. So that was quite a challenge, and, and, I, and I presented that, and, and it amazed me and still amazes me how human beings all over the planet were so extremely... Yeah, yeah let's talk about a little bit of science uh, communication, because that's, that's really what you're doing nowadays i think a lot of the yeah, time I'm anyway doing a lot of and you were the coordinator for the for the for the communication effort connected with the higgs boson yes i i was uh, there we have someone who's called an outreach coordinator in our collaboration so the atlas collaborations about 3000 people who come from 80 uh yeah over 80 institutions no i'm sorry i'm underestimating over 180 yeah. <laughs> institutions from around the globe and uh they uh you know, we, we have many different positions. You can be the convener of a specific, you know, physics uh, analysis, or you can be the physics coordinator, or you can be the, the, the technical coordinator. There's, there's many, many ranges of things we do. I was doing the outreach coordination, we call it, which includes communication, education, all of this uh, at the time. Uh, and we had just sort of started to convert over to being able to do communication. It wasn't as important before. No. <laughs> you know, we, there wasn't so much to communicate, just that, okay, we've, we've started collisions or things like that. Now suddenly that was a big, uh, interesting thing. And it was quite a challenge because we sort of had a hint back in December beforehand, December of 2011, that there might be something. And we knew that the next time there would be a major conference, and everything's defined in our field by major conferences. You know, that's that you actually stop the, the, uh, collisions and, and, you know, finish up, you know, your analyses specifically for these major conferences. And we have a, a bit of a competition between our experiment and another experiment on the collider called CMS. Uh, the two of us compete to, to a certain extent. It's sort of a, I call it coopetition. In other words, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's science. You need two measurements. We both work on it. We each, of course, want to have the best measurement. And, uh, and find something first. Mm. Uh, and, but in the end, you know, it's, it's for the good of science. So, you know, at that time, uh, you know, we didn't know what each other had. <laughs> so, so it was basically, okay, we're going to go and we're going to show our cards. And, uh, and we had the, the, uh, the event happen. In fact, what happened was, I, I say we didn't know, but a few people 
did know. The spokespersons of the experiments found out, and they talked with the director general of the laboratory at the time. They decided that it would be best to roll this out at CERN. Of course, those of us uh, lower on the totem pole had already <laughs> booked our tickets. We were already flying out to Melbourne, which is where the conference was, Oh, all the way across the globe. So I found myself over in Melbourne. The management, they canceled their – well, they delayed their tickets or whatever, and they stayed for for the, the event there. But we had a, a sim- simultaneous webcast and saw it, and I found myself having to do a lot of communication because yeah. they were, the, the media were all over there at, at Melbourne asking questions. That was fascinating. Lots of all-nighters, lots of work. Must have been very intense. Press releases. Yeah. yeah. It was it was intense, but, I mean, I would do it again in a, in a second. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic to see. Trending in Twitter. Yeah. Trending in Twitter, there was there – was, you know the the LHC there was there was CERN there was the Higgs boson the Standard Model and Comic Sans. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, <laughs> that was the font that our, our our current director general, who was our spokesperson Fabiola Gianotti, that was her favorite font. Yeah. Uh, so it became a sort of a meme afterwards, right? It it did. It was almost if you know if if I'd uh, had the courage, I would have changed all of our web pages that day to uh, to Comic Sans. Just, <laughs> just to do it. It's sort of a, a statement of you know <laughs> the, the geeks over the rest. You know, sorry, you know, this is how we do it. Yeah. So science communication in general is something very important, I believe. What can be better with, I mean, as, a, as scientists all around the world, how can they communicate better? How can the scientists communicate? It's something that I've been learning. It's taken me quite some time where I was very fortunate to have people who are experts in communication. And the first thing you can do is listen to your experts in communication. Yeah. And uh, scientists are terrible at listening to anybody. Mm-hmm. We all know how to do everything better than them. And so, uh, and, and you face that all the time. Even when our management changes, uh, everyone feels they're going to do the communication better. We have some really great people in management, uh, and, and they're, Really helping by uh, being enthusiastic and giving us things to do. Uh, we, we take our papers, for example, and if we think it's a topic that's interesting, uh, we summarize it and get that out. But I think, yeah, number one is listen to the communication people because they know, uh, they know, uh, how to target audiences, the audiences you want to, to reach mm-hmm. and package it up with a message. You know, a single message or two messages, if you, you know, yeah. whatever needs to be done. And that stuff we're not trained at. No. You know? <laughs> so, so I listen to them, uh, do the best we can. We also try to partner. So something like this, doing, a, doing a podcast. Yeah. There are people who do podcasts and they're good at it. And so I always encourage anyone in our collaboration to go and do that and, and to, to speak because, uh, you'll ask the right questions for us. And so, uh, I, I think that's partnering with, with different, different entities, uh, in the media. And, uh, and really realizing that the hardest lesson for us is that you don't have to explain every single detail of everything. Uh, it, it you know, and that's a hard thing. Yeah. Because scientists, well, first of all, we're proud. You want to be exact as well. You don't want to be, yes. uh, you know, glossing over the, the important details. We want to be exactly correct and get everything just right. And, uh, yeah, even, okay, I just mentioned the Higgs field, yeah. the Higgs boson. Okay, so I, I was in our uh, control room, and, and the, the, the ex-spokesperson was, was over. He was operating. He was doing work uh, over there, uh, shift. He was in charge of the shift. And he overheard me talking to a journalist, and I'd done everything pretty well. And then, then I said something like, you know, well, the Higgs boson sort of like the propagator of that uh, field. And he looked at me. I said, I'm sorry. What I mean is it's an excitation of the field. <laughs> because, you know, but what does that mean? Yeah. You know, actually, what does that mean? It's a very hard thing conceptually. And we're, we're in a world that, that conceptually is very, very challenging. And so we have to sort of make some shortcuts to give analogies 
even though the analogies will never be perfectly accurate, but nobody lives in the quantum world. No. So you can't be perfect on that. So I, I think, you know, yeah, communication, I, you know, I think that's the, my, my, uh, advice is, is, you know, to do the best you can listen, listen to people and, and do it. Because the more you do it, the better you get. Myself, it took me a long time to be able to give a, a nice public talk that people like, and it's all essentially just putting together questions that I've had, uh, from people who I've given visits to. That's the best place to learn what, are, what people want to know. And, you find out how to explain it because you'll do it wrong the first three or four times yeah. and then you'll finally find something that clicks and you see it in their eyes that, oh, and probably the, I would say that the hardest questions I get come from the younger ones, uh, the younger kids, probably middle school children. Uh, they, they ask profound questions and, and I can spend forever trying to, to yeah. answer them. Uh, so, so yeah, and I think, and yeah, doing it is the All best right. way to do it. Okay. This is fascinating stuff. So uh, thank you, Stephen Goldfarb. Very nice to catch up with you, and I hope we will catch up again in the future. I hope so, too. We have a lot of discoveries coming up just around the corner. We now know who to call when we need somebody to explain them to us. Excellent. Okay. Very good. Thanks okay. very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Richard Saunders here from the Skeptic Zone podcast, a podcast for science and reason from Australia. Every week since 2008, The Skeptic Zone has brought you reports, interviews, and investigations from all around the world. We have many listeners all through Europe. That's The Skeptic Zone podcast at www.skepticzone.tv. So, I think that's all we had for today, right? Yep, I think so. All right, we're we're getting close to episode 100. Let's see what we'll do about this. This was episode 98. So thank you very much for today, Jelena. Yeah, thanks, Pontus. All right, tune in next week. Bye-bye. Until then, bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I heard you. I'm yeah. your co, I'm your host tonight. Your host tonight. I, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to be the host. <laughs> I've got my corset ready and my high heel. No. Um. <laughs> Of course, it it all um, comes down to the fact that they'll...
busy, are you? 